And so Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. And he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now the ram is a symbolic of substitutionary sacrifice all throughout the Bible. So it's not just a lamb, it's a ram. And Abraham called his name at that place, Yahweh provides. And it said to this day in the mountain of Yahweh, provision will be made. And Yahweh's angel called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And he said, I solemnly swear by my own name, decrees Yahweh, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be a countless as the stars of the sky and the grains of the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the strongholds of their enemies because you have obeyed me and all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. Notice for the first time ever, God says, I will, I will, I will. And never says, if you obey. All throughout chapter 12, the promises. 15, the covenant being made. 17, the sign of the covenant being given. God said, if you do this, then I will honor my covenant. If you do this, then I will honor. But now God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, because you obeyed me. And now this covenant will go on to your descendants. At this moment, the covenant becomes unconditional. And it doesn't matter what Israel does or does not do. This covenant will always be honored by God for all humanity because it has become unconditional. And you're going to see this when we get to Jacob's life, and you're like, there's no way this guy is anywhere close to his father to get this covenant. I mean, Jacob is a big, giant scumbag with very few redeeming qualities. But when God comes to Jacob, and then later the sons of Jacob, he will always start every conversation with, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and then later Jacob. And what is the point of that statement? I am the God of the Abrahamic covenant. I am blessing you because of the covenant that was cut at that time. And the covenant that I made with Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, because Abraham obeyed me in this moment. And this paints a picture of one man's faith becoming a blessing to everybody else, whether they deserve it or not. There is typology here. And obviously, it's so easy to see Christ in this. But we've got to be very careful with typology. We need to be very careful to not take the Second Testament and read it back into the First and start seeing everything in the First Testament as just the Gospels. Okay? And I'm probably not going to do justice. This is a difficult tension. Because in one moment, everything about the First Testament is about Christ. But the same moment... It's not like everything in the First Testament was just about Christ. Like Abraham's life and Isaac and Noah, they only existed for the sake of Christ. 
And so we need to realize that in one sense, God is weaving this typology in this story that it will ultimately lead to Christ's coming to be the ultimate Israel to save them. And he, all these things are pointing towards him. But at the same time, we can't disregard these people's lives as just all their life was there for was just to become some kind of a symbol for Christ. Because then you lose everything that God is doing in their life and how he's growing them. And then one begins to think, and then my life only exists to become this symbol for the second coming. And then that means the way that God is growing you and the way that God is interacting with you doesn't matter. Does that kind of make sense? Like, yes, they exist for Christ and to glorify him. I don't want to demean that everything is about Christ, but that doesn't mean that every single day that they're communing with God and they're talking with God and they're growing in faith, every single thing is allegorically all about Christ all the time, just to paint a picture of who Jesus is going to be. And so we need to see the first testament's point to Christ, but we can't make it so much about Christ that their relationship with God becomes kind of shallow. And then, and then what you do is you get dangerous like the early church fathers. Everything becomes allegorical. The knife represents the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the sticks that he's carrying represents the sins of the world. And the early church fathers did that. They looked because they thought everything was about Christ. So every time they saw a piece of wood, every time they saw grain, every time they saw, and Abraham prayed, like, please don't let my son die. And oh, they, there's some kind of theological thing about Christ there. It's like, no, that's just the relation with God. No, that's just the creation of the world. And so we, we need to maintain this tension where their lives do matter. Their relationship with God is significant. And not every little thing is about Christ. But at the same time, this is about God becoming a blessing to the entire world, which is ultimately through Christ, and it starts here. And so for this reason, we can't go back and assume that everything here in the First Testament is just there for, hey, there's Christ. We need to see it more as God is telling the story, weaving things through, but in the midst of the story, he's also laying stepping stones, puzzles, things that will point to Christ. And that ultimately it's not, the question is the chicken or the egg first. Was all those things put in place so that it could point to Christ? Or is God so masterful in himself that he's able to use all those things and say Christ is like that? And I know I might be muddying the waters and confusing things even more, but this is a difficult thing about typology is we don't really know exactly how it's working all the time. So in some sense, you can say, yes, Isaac becomes like a Christ. He's foreshadowing that. Now, here's what's cool about Isaac. You think a 14-year-old boy could overpower a 100-year-old man and get away from him? That when your dad is coming at you with ropes and knife, that you've probably figured it all out? And what ding-dong kid just stands there and allows his dad to tie him up and throw him on an altar and shove a knife into his chest? Which means that Isaac has willingly offered himself up too. Which means at the age of 12 or 14 years old, he has claimed this faith so personally that he's willing to offer up his own life as a sacrifice. They trust his father that much. And so in some ways... Christ becomes, Isaac becomes like a Christ. When God comes to Abraham and says, offer up your one and only son, the only other time you see that phrase 
is at the baptism and the transfiguration of Christ. He takes them to the hill Moriah, which a thousand years later is going to be the hill that they're going to build the temple. And a thousand years after that is going to be the hill that Christ is crucified on. It just happens to be the exact same hill that Christ is going to be sacrificed on. But here's the problem. Isaac doesn't die, but Christ did. So in some ways, the lamb, the ram, is actually more of a Christ figure than Isaac is because the lamb, the the ram, dies in place of Isaac. And so this typology doesn't perfectly point to Christ or there is no sacrifice of Christ. But what we see is little hints of that idea of someone offering themselves up willingly, of a father who's willing to offer up his son, of God providing a replacement. It doesn't scream 100%, this is Jesus. And they're not thinking anything like, oh, Jesus, Messiah, death and resurrection. They're not getting that. So in that way, it's not a perfect typology of Christ because it just doesn't fit perfectly. But in some sense, that is who God is, a father who's willing to offer up his own son because he loves us so much, a father who's willing to offer up a substitutionary sacrifice so we don't die, a father who eventually the son will be willing to offer himself for other people. And so don't think of this foreshadowing of Christ as a perfect picture. Think of it as attributes and characters of who God is and how he operates. And of course, we're going to see that in Christ when he finally comes, because Christ is going to be the most ultimate manifestation of what we see of the same God right here. And so this isn't a picture saying, that's Jesus. This is a picture saying, this is who God is. So that when Jesus comes up and he starts doing the exact same things that you see here, you can make the logical conclusion That must be God. Does that make sense? And that's how typology works. It's not meant to be a perfect picture of this is exactly what Christ is going to do. It's meant to be a demonstration of the core of who God is so that when God shows up in the flesh, you'll easily recognize him. And that's why Jesus is going to say, if you knew the Father, you would recognize me. And this is why we're not giving any new revelation of who God is in the Second Testament. Because you have to recognize Christ. If Christ does things that God has never done, then that ruins you saying that must be God. Because the more new things that he does that God has never done, then the more accurately you could say they're different gods. But when he does everything that God does and nothing new, then you can really truly say that is God. And that's why there's no new revelation in the Second Testament. And that's why you'll never learn who God truly is in the Second Testament without the first. Because in the Second Testament, all we see is Christ in the Gospels. And God is talked about in the epistles. But it's only in the First Testament that we see God in action. So that when God comes in the Son in action, we can say, they're the same. They're the same. And that's how typology works. If that hopefully clears the water a little bit more. Sometimes you've got to muddy it before you clear it. And I'm not even convinced that I did a good job of that. So 
because I'm wrestling. I don't even have a clear picture. I know that it's a both and, and I don't know how they, I just know I can't go too far one way, and I can't go too far the other way, and I do my best to stay in the middle and hope to God that I've done a good job, okay, and that's the best I can do, which means it makes it even harder to explain it, and I don't think we can. Anybody can truly explain it. Verse 19, then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set out together from Beersheba, where Abraham stayed. After these things, Abraham was told, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, and Uz, the father of his brother Buz, Kimmel, and the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazor, and then he goes on with all these names that I'm just going to guess at as I pronounce them. His concubine, whose name was Ramoth, also born children. Now, a couple of things are happening here. Notice that Isaac didn't come back down the hill. Now, we know he came back down the hill in real life because he's going to end up in the tent when Rebecca comes back. Well, not comes back, but comes for the first time. But why does the narrator specifically say that he didn't come down? I don't know. Now, what's also interesting is that we are not told about Isaac. So in chapter 23, Isaac is not in the story. You get to chapter 24, Isaac is not in the story until the very last verse, and he's passive. Then you get to chapter 25, and Isaac is not in the story. And then you get to chapter 26, and Isaac finally pops up as a main character again. And then after that, he's not in the story. You're like, well, yeah, he's kind of there in 25, and he's kind of there in 27, but only as a minor character. Jacob is the main character. You only get one chapter with Isaac as the main character. And the question is, why? Why do you get all these chapters about Abraham, all these chapters about Jacob, all these chapters about Joseph, and a few chapters about Judah, but you get one chapter about Isaac, and the rest of the time he's just this minor character, if he's even there at all. Now, some have pointed out that this might be a symbol of Christ and the fact that Isaac never comes down the hill after his sacrifice, and the only time you see him is his servant goes off and gets the bride, Rebecca, and brings her back, and that's the only time you see Isaac is when he takes his bride and that might be like Christ who dies and goes up into heaven. The Holy Spirit goes out and finds the church and the bride and brings them back. And that might be there. And I used to kind of hang some hats on that, but now I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like that's stretching things too far, especially when nobody in the Second Testament makes any of those connections. And that might be there. But ultimately, we're left with, we have no idea. But one thing that we can say that all commentators agree on when you begin to see Isaac, he is very passive. Abraham is a man who's active, even when he should not be active and he's doing things he shouldn't be. But he's very active in his faith. And Jacob, oh my gosh, that guy just will not stop moving. Yeah, he is hyperactive. But Isaac just lets life happen to him. He doesn't really discipline a whole lot. Rebecca totally is going to wear the pants in the family. He just goes along with scenarios, and he just lets things happen to him. And with a father like Abraham and a personality that is somewhat passive, he kind of just disappears into the story of what God is doing. And that's our best explanation of what's going on here. Isaac is just not active enough in his faith to really become a major character in the story of God. And we see him. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have faith. 
It doesn't mean that God doesn't use him. It just means that he just doesn't really stand out as someone who really steps out in an authoritative action kind of a way. And then we get this genealogy of this family back in Aram, of Bethuel. And you're like, why is that there? Because that's the transition into what will happen in a couple of chapters of Rachel, or sorry, Rebecca. Because in chapter 33, Sarah's going to die, and in chapter 24, we're going to be introduced to Rebecca, who is a descendant of this genealogy that we just got at the end of chapter 22. And so this is the transitioning. We're transitioning out of the life of Abraham into the brief moment with Isaac and ultimately into Jacob. 